The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Salmon. So, welcome to episode 26. Uh, this week, we've got a lot to cover, and uh, I kind of want to do it in a little tighter fashion for everybody's listening pleasure. So, uh, you know, buckle up, I guess. But the first thing we'll do is talk about what we're driving, uh, which dovetails actually uh, quite nicely. So, we're going to try to sort of contain what we're driving and then go on a tangent that's completely relevant and everybody will like it so uh that's because of you sam okay <laughs> so uh what's i, I guess it, you you drive drove a couple of things uh this week but uh sort of like the the car that's darkening your driveway is an old favorite of mine that's well, the Grand it's, Cherokee, yeah, it's right? actually no it's no longer darkening the driveway it, it went back yesterday uh but yeah it was the uh 2017 uh jeep grand cherokee uh summit which is like their premium Ooh. edition version of it. Um, and yeah, it, it's the Grand Cherokee is definitely an old favorite of mine as well. Uh, yeah, the, the current edition is, is actually really nice. It's It's been around, what, about three years now, three, four years? Uh, they changed it in 14 and then they just keep like incrementally, yeah. incrementally changing it every year. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, even going back to the original Grand Cherokee in the early 90s, uh, that was introduced after uh, uh, Bob Lutz drove it through the plate glass window at the Kobo Center at the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, you know, one one thing about the Grand Cherokee, you know, among SUVs is it's always had some of the best driving dynamics of any SUV that actually has also real off-road capability. Um, and that continues to the, the current generation. You know, it it's got shockingly good ride quality for something that's as capable as it is. Well, and that was one of the reasons that actually drove us to purchase the Grand Cherokee was that, you know, we tried a few other things and they just, you know, they rode crappy or they didn't handle very well. They weren't very composed. The Grand Cherokee, you can really feel that it shares a platform with the Mercedes. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't think it still does. I I believe it still does. The tell for me is the rear lower control arms. Okay. They, they look exactly the same on the, uh, the Grand Cherokee as they do on the, uh, it's been renamed now, but I think it's the GLE, whatever there had been the ML, whatever the ML is now. Yeah. Yeah. So the rear, the lower control arms in the rear are the same. And if you look at the, like the dashboard, the outlets for the HVAC are roughly in the same spot. Okay. Uh, Cause that's, that's sort of like core engineering that they're not going to change if they don't have to, you know, it's right. very expensive. So, um, yeah, so but it, it's you know, good. <laughs> the, Grand, the Grand Cherokee's always been, you know, a, you know, one of the, probably one of the best looking midsize SUVs. 
uh, you know, and, you know, it's not, I mean, it's an actual proper SUV, you know, uh, it's got its own dedicated platform. It's a, it's a unibody, but it's not, you know, based on a front wheel drive platform or anything like that. It's, you know, it's true. You know, I mean, it, Grand Cherokees only come with four wheel drive. You know, I mean, they've got some different flavors of four wheel drive, but they're all four wheel drive. There's no two wheel drive, you know, rear or, or front drive. Uh, I thought that, well, I, I don't know. I, uh, I don't no. want to spill hairs. I thought you could buy a rear wheel drive Grand Cherokee. For I don't think markets. so. Okay. I could I be wrong. I think it's like the Wrangler, you know, they've never offered a rear drive version of it. No, the rear drive Wrangler only happens when you break the front drive shaft. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's a unibody, but it's, there's beefy subframes under there. Um, you know, having sort of curled around under my own, um, it's just it's it's well thought out for going off road, which I, I agree. It makes it all the more shocking that it's it is so well behaved on the road. Yeah, well, especially when you compare it to the Wrangler. I mean, you know, you've heard me complain in the past about some vehicles that along certain stretches of highway around these parts, you know, that get into you know very bouncy vertical motions. Um, and the Wrangler is one of those vehicles that that does that. But the Grand Cherokee does not. You know, it's it's totally, you know, stable and composed, you know, on, on everything I've I've driven it over, um, you know, and it's also very comfortable. Uh, you know, it's roomy. The you know, the current generation uh, is really nicely executed in the you know, in terms of the interior materials and the fit and finish. Um, it doesn't have an electronic shifter uh, the way most other current Fiat Chrysler products do. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a mechanical shifter, you know, to the transmission. Oh, you've still got the, the the wait. I thought it had the rotary knob now. No, not in the Jeeps. Huh? Uh, Chrysler models do. Uh, okay. But the uh, the the Jeeps. Oh, have you know them. you know what? It, right. I'm thinking of the Ram. I had a Ram oh, yeah, that had Ram, the rotary Rams, knob. Yeah. Rams have them. But, right. Uh, the Jeeps have, or at least the Grand Cherokee and the Wrangler. I haven't. Uh, I'm not sure what's in the new uh, the new Compass. I'll have to take a closer look at that one. But uh, the Grand Cherokee still has a mechanical shifter, so it's, you know, it's more, um, you know, you know which gear you're in when you shift. Yeah, and we can talk about that when we get to what I'm driving. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, powertrain in this one, it, it's a Summit. Uh, is it the Pentastar or yeah, is it the V8? The Pentastar, and it's the latest uh, iteration of the Pentastar um, with the 8-speed automatic, uh, and it has auto stop start. Which is, you know, it's also, you know, very well executed. It's very smooth. Um, you know, it, as soon as you lift your foot off the brake, you know that that engine's fired back up again, and it, and you're ready to go. There's no no waiting for it. Um, got surprisingly good fuel economy. You know, uh, you, you know, even though it's riding on 20 inch wheels, got uh, average like 22 miles per gallon over the week I drove it. Uh, That's so much better than what mine gets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine's on, mine gets 18. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's nice. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not cheap. You know, it's about this one was about sixty grand. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I mean, if you compare it to a lot of other sixty thousand dollar luxury SUVs, um, you know, that compares very favorably to most of them. You know, compared to a, a GLE or an X Five or uh, you know, uh, let's see, uh, probably I guess like Audi Q Q Seven would probably be the closest in size to this one. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it compares very favorably. Well, and that's. That's what I felt about it was because it it had that it's kind of expensive underlying engineering, right? They they did it like the way uh, a large sort of multi line European automaker 
does it back back when they designed this one, the WK. Uh-huh. Um, and then they made it the WK2 uh, for, I think, 2011 when they went to, you know, um, fully independent suspension. The, the original WK had a solid rear axle still. Right. Uh, but overall, this this dates back largely to the WKs. Um, and that was under Daimler ownership. So there's this this one platform had to serve two masters it, and actually more because it, it was it's the, also the form of the basis of the Durang, Dodge Durango. Right. Uh, which it's, it, you know, start that started off as the, the commander, um, it, you know, it's to the point where the last Durango I had, I looked and the one of the stickers inside on the seats still had like the outline of a commander. Oh, did it really? <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, we didn't pay to upgrade that one. Um, but yeah, so they, they put a lot of hard work into making a, just a, a real good basic platform. And then you can, you can climb sort of the ladder of, uh, niceness. And you know, that's, you've, you've got the summit, which is, is pretty much the, the top trim. And there's some options that you can make it even nicer if you want. But the summit is basically like that, that's the ne plus ultra of uh of uh grand cherokees yeah and it is very like nice a, a mesh grill you know mesh inserts in the in the seven bars of the grill that sort of thing. right so um but the basic goodness is there in the you know in the laredo if you really want it like you know a laredo with an x package well that's pretty much a limited you know they do this interesting thing where they kind of overlap at the trim levels and so the the laredo is the base model the Laredo X is is basically the same equipment level that a limited has standard limited's roughly forty thousand um, dollars, and that has like leather and a sunroof and you know some nicey nice stuff. Um, yeah, I drove a Laredo a couple of years ago, and you know, I mean, you know, not you know, not quite as you know nicely trimmed out inside, but you know, in terms of the way it drives and everything else, it was it was just as good. Right. It's dead on. It's just you, you're missing like, you know, I, my leather seats in the limited are not as nice as the leather seats in the in the um, the Overland or the uh, Summit. Uh, I don't have leather on the dashboard like the Summit, you know, so there's yeah. you, you do you do climb the price ladder and you climb the, the niceties. Um, but it, like, it's just a solid vehicle. I'm a little bit worried about what they're going to follow it up with because it's starting to get long in tooth. And, and the, you know, the, the Grand Cherokee is sort of like the highest, highest value uh, property in. I don't know, all of the Chrysler portfolio. That is, that is like, that's probably the best thing they make. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, um, I'm actually just looking at the, uh, the building price for uh, the Grand Cherokee on, on the, the website, the Jeep website. And it is in fact available as a four by two. So I, I was mistaken. Yeah. Well, who the hell wants to buy that? <laughs> no, why, why bother? I, I guess, you know, for States where it doesn't snow or, or what, I mean, and it's granted, you don't need four wheel drive for snow, but it's, it, it is pretty nice to have. And they offer course, multiple you know, four wheel drives. If you're going to drive one in States with no snow, then, you know, you might want to just step up to an SRT or, or the right. Trackhawk. Right. Um, which is the, the Hellcat uh, powered version of the Grand Cherokee, which, which just seems bonkers. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, hey, why not? You know, I mean, if, yeah, I mean, that, Cayenne GTS, you know, why not a Trackhawk? Uh, and, you know, that's that's Chrysler's niche is like they, they do some solid uh, vehicles and then they just do this sort of off the wall stuff. Um, and that's that's fine. I'm glad that they do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I am I am, well, you know, one, that one is going to get seriously expensive. I've, I've heard uh, from uh, somebody uh, inside there that that one might be uh, close to ninety thousand dollars. That's still a deal, though, when you consider what it's going to do. Oh, yeah. I, 
I, I don't think that that's you know, outrageous. 700 horsepower Grand Cherokee. Yeah, I, that's fine. But yeah. it's it's worth every penny. Uh, <laughs> Why not? Um. So, yeah, that's I mean, that, that has to be a, a pretty good week rolling around in the Grand Cherokee, uh, although it's gone now. So I'm, I'm sorry to, uh, you know, we're, we're I hope they replaced it with something at least as nice. It's hard to come um, down off that. Sometimes. Yeah, you, you could say that I, I uh, swapped it for uh, a Jaguar XF uh, diesel uh, R type. So uh, we'll talk about that one next week. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. So uh, and we'll also we'll talk shortly about what you what else you drove uh this week um but just to keep it on the garage side so i drove sort of like ho-hum and uh they replaced that with with actually a pretty nice uh, car so i drove the uh ford escape titanium which uh yeah i don't know if i have a whole lot to say about that um it's a it's a solid platform it's quiet it does everything it's supposed to do it incites no passion i don't it's not supposed to is that i was a, a no leader or the one yeah no, it's a two liter. The powertrain is very good. Uh, it's it's pretty refined and and definitely powerful and just zips right along. And the the it feels very solid on the road. It it drives fine, um, but it's just it was a lot of dough. It was it's a titanium trim, but it still it didn't have leather seats. Really? It had yeah, it had like some sort of like split upholstery option. I don't. I, yeah, I titaniums came standard with leather. I was like 37 grand too. Yeah. Uh which that's a lot of money for an escape. Um and you know, Sync 3 better, still not great. Um but you know, it, it's it was okay. And this, this this is an issue like it's a compact crossover. But I I and I know everything has gotten kind of like more expensive now too, but from, from like my frame of reference of what used to be expensive, <laughs> this is apparently what happens when you age. Uh, but thirty-seven seems like an awfully high price to be paying for something that's just, you know, you're buying a crossover for utility, and it just doesn't seem all that utilitarian. It's it's, it, you know, it's kind of a tight well, package. Know, I mean, not, none of the compact crossovers really are all that utilitarian. You know, when you when you think about it, um, yeah. I mean, they're you know they're they're fine. You know. But, you know, compared to, say, you know, a Ford Focus wagon, which you can buy in Europe, but you can't buy here. I, w- I would so love to have the Focus wagon. Yeah, I, would, I mean, I would take the Focus wagon, too, over the utility. But that's not what American consumers want. Um, so, you know, what are you going to do? You, you, you got to give people what they will actually want to buy. If you want we to could move to Europe, damn it. <laughs> I yeah, moved there just what? for the wagons. Even the European market is has been shifting towards crossovers in recent years. So it's not a uniquely American thing. Actually, it's it's actually more of a global. Yeah, it's a global craze. And I don't I don't Europe. get it. Yeah, and even even in China, you know, they're they're getting more and more into crossover. Well, I, you know, and that's I I say I don't get it, but then again, I I do get it. You know, because they're car like the seating position is up, which is nice, and and you know the you know apparently the the sort of prevailing fashion is away from wagons, and that's that's okay. So. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I, I get it. And, but you know, the, the compact crossover really is, you know, the 21st century station wagon. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, unfortunately, you kind of miss out on a bunch of the wagon goodness, just, you know, at the, the altar of style. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, this is another one like the Grand Cherokee that 
the escape now it's not that old but it's starting to age um and really where that comes through is in how you uh the secondary controls you know and and the escape this generation always had that weird euro ford kind of feeling to it because it's it's focus based um and it so it has a lot of buttons and they're kind of confusing you got to poke around a little bit and yeah sync 3 is a lot better than uh earlier iterations of my ford touch but it's still you know it's gonna be it's gonna i think it's gonna take like a full redesign before it gets better um it's not it's not bad it's it's just it's not as good as it could be you mean if sync 3 it needs a redesign no i think just overall it's not necessarily the the vehicle itself like just sync 3 is sort of the least of its problems sync 3 is 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 good it's pretty snappy and it's it's a little bit easier to figure out than some of the other systems and and it it is what it is uh yeah i mean it's it's stable it doesn't crash like you know my ford touches right um yeah and you know the the control the the UI is is definitely much better. It's easier to find stuff and, and get at things. You know, you're not you're not hitting trying to hit tiny touch targets in the corners of the screen. That sort of yeah. Thing. And and so this is one of those. I guess it's one of those cases where like with just a week with it, it's a little confusing. Um, once you live with it, it's it's probably better. But it, there are a lot of like small same size buttons jammed together on the dash, and that that makes it a little tough to to like to, and and that's you know that that hardware side of it you know that you're right that's that's something that's only going to come with the, the next generation vehicle and you know i think when they when they do that you know that that is going to change you know it it'll probably look more like um you know what we've been shown of the uh the 2018 echo sport uh, that's coming to the u.s market uh early next year uh you know that one you know the, the direction that ford's going like most other manufacturers is you know having more of a, a, a upright tablet style touchscreen at the top uh, the top of the center stack you know that kind of sticks up from the rest of the dash and then a better laid out uh array of buttons and switches below it yeah and i'm not sure how i feel about that with the, the, the i guess it's i'm gonna have to see how that gets executed because like i thought volvo's sort of tablet size screen would be good but it's i it's not and I think part of that is is the actual well, like UI. Yeah, I mean that's that. Yeah, that's I think that the, the UI is more of the problem there. Uh, you know, the just the having the the larger screen, you know, that's mounted up a little bit higher. You know, which is a direction that a lot of manufacturers are going. Like, you know, Mazda has been doing that for a few years now, and and a lot of the Europeans have been doing that. You know, it gets the gets the tap gets the display up closer to your line of sight, so you don't have to look down and away as much um to to see what's on the screen yeah uh, so you're not looking as much away from the road um so i think you know that's generally a better layout yeah and you know i mean you know to pick on sort of the dashboard of the car sort of short changes the rest of the car because it is like the the escape is uh i really loved the first generation escape um this second generation escape is much better every it, it you know overall in every aspect it's uh you know much lighter on its feet and i mean it's it's it, it's weighty. It goes down the road with a purpose, but it, it's nimble, I guess. It's not necessarily light on its feet mm-hmm. in that sense. Handles really well. Uh, it's let down by its tires. Yeah, it's got, got good dynamics. But yeah, it, it rides and handles like it was sort of designed by somebody who, who knew what they were doing. It's not a vehicle that really kind of encourages you to, to you know take advantage of it, but it, it definitely it, it hangs on. <laughs> you know, not too much body roll and stuff. Uh, it, it's a decent size. You know, it, it's... Um, it's right in that sort of C segment crossover 
size. Uh, you know, the, the the interior just feels tight, even though it's larger than the original Escape. Um, and I remember running the numbers a couple of years ago, and I was surprised to find out that it's you know it's got more cargo space, it's got more rear legroom. It just just the the original one was was so boxy that it just yeah. felt bigger. And it you know the dashboard well, kind of comes in the you console. Know, when, you, when you compare the Escape to you know some of the latest of its competitors like the the latest CRV and the the Chevy Equinox, um, you know, it is a little bit shorter than. Yeah, they're those. bigger. They're so, definitely bigger. So it is. It is a little bit tighter inside, you know, or or the Nissan Rogue is yeah. another one. You know, it's, they're they're all a little bit longer, slightly longer wheelbase. Um, so they they do feel a little bit roomier. Yeah, and the Rogue, I think, is especially the back. So the, the Rogue, I think, is its most direct competitor, and that's like a that's a quiet giant in this segment. It sells a lot, and it's it's very you know very competitive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually Nissan's best selling yeah. vehicle, and, and it's. They sold over 300,000 yeah. of them last year. Um, for a reason. But anyway, we should talk about something that's a little less boring. <laughs> uh, like well, so a couple of days ago, they dropped off a uh, BMW 530i. Uh, and and I, I really have mixed feelings about it. You know, it, it's uh, I, I think it's like the automotive embodiment of everything we, we cover on the podcast. You know, on the one hand, it's it's equipped the way. BMW intenders and loyal owners probably want it because BMW knows their market. But on the other hand, I think we should acknowledge now that BMW has retreated from being a sports sedan maker to a luxury car maker. Uh, you know, the, the car, their cars have definitely always been luxury items, but a core part of the brand's cachet was the performance edge. And I, I've been driving this 530 I uh, for a couple of days and I, I put like extra miles on it um, sort of by mistake because I missed an exit in the rain and I had to go another 15 miles to turn around. That's a completely different story. <laughs> uh, but, it, it, you know, it's 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 capable, but it's it's not like, you know, past five series cars, the E39 and even the E60, those were were benchmarks. This is just another one in the segment in in that sense. You know, it's it's a it's a full on luxury car. It's quiet. It's really comfortable. It's full of tech. Um, and I think that that's now sort of what people buying this type of car want. And and so that was an interesting sort of mental exercise to get to, to understand that, like, this five series is is what the five series needs to be right now. Well, I mean, if you if you look at the way. I mean, and this is this is you know the same can be said of pretty much every model and every vehicle, every brand's lineup. Uh, but you know, if you look at the way the five series has evolved over the last twenty years, you know, like everything else in the BMW lineup and like everything from every manufacturer, it has gotten bigger. And you know, the five series today, you know, is bigger than a seven series was, you know, twenty years ago. Uh, you know, so it's it's kind of you could almost say it has taken the place of what a seven series used to be. And in fact, the, the, the previous generation and this generation of the five series actually shares its platform with the seven series. So, you know, it's going to tend to feel more like the bigger car, uh, which has always been, you know, more of a luxury model as opposed to yeah. a sports sedan. You know, it was like two generations ago, you know, when the, the five series had its own platform. Right. Uh, right. So, you know, it's it's going to have a different feel, um, and you know, the three and four series that we have today are you know closer to what a five series was you know twenty twenty five years that's, ago. That's that's fair, and like honestly, it's a very good luxury car. Uh, don't 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 get me wrong. Um, and it, you know, 
I think the, the thing that stood out the most for me is like this is it's this car is full of technology. And and some of it's really, really good. You know, the automated cruise control, I think it's excellent. It's very fine-tuned. It's, it's smooth at acceleration and deceleration. Just really, really refined. Probably the best I've used all year uh, among the top in any class. It's it's, it's really good. Um, and that that's hard to do. Like, it's I think it's one of those features now that's cheap enough and easy enough to put in the car, but it's hard to make it, you know, really as as refined as it is here it's it's the the control software is the key to it now because you know the radar sensors are you know under fifty dollars yeah <laughs> so it's, it's it's a you know it's a relatively inexpensive bit of extra hardware to add now and it it all comes down to how you calibrate it calibrate the system and and get all the other pieces working together getting the, the powertrain and the brakes working as part of that speed control. Yeah, they've really, really done their homework, you know, just the, the sort of the ramps to log up, you know, to, to ramp up the the uh, brake pressure and stuff. It's all really smooth, really well done. Um, and these, like, that's the keys. Like, these systems can be jerky in, in traffic where you want them the most, or they just give up. You know, some of them don't have the... Right. the uh, that was one of the things that bugged me about the um, Escape, where it it had radar crews, but in a stop and go situation under twenty miles an hour, it's like nope, you take the wheel. It's like come on, guys. Yeah, well, the the thing is, in order to do um, full speed stop and go capability, you actually need to have uh, two radar sensors um, that are operating at different frequencies. You need a longer range radar ah. for higher speeds and a short range radar for lower speeds. So a lot of the systems on um, lower cost vehicles. Uh, still only have a single radar sensor. So, you know, they they have the long-range radar sensors, which is what they originally used when they first introduced this stuff. And, you know, that, that'll get you down to, you know, the, down to the 20-mile-an-hour range. Below that, you need a short-range sensor, um, which operates, a like I say, a different frequency. And, you know, that takes over there and, and gives you that full speed capability, the full stop. And they, they can't use the cheaper sonar sensors that are in the bumpers for like, you know, not crashing into stuff when you're parking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, they're they're not. There's not enough precision. Huh. there. Um, and in fact, those those are the, the ultrasonic sensors are too short range. They're not not long enough range to do that. So you actually need something in between that what the ultrasonic sensors will do um, and the uh, and the long range radar. So, you know, what, what we're, you know, uh, most, you know, most manufacturers have been moving towards, you know, either um, a, a dual sensor setup, uh, which, you know, Ford has now on when they did the refresh last year on the Fusion, they added that in there. So it's got full stop and go capability now because when it launched in 2013, it only had the, um, the long range radar. So they've got full stop and go now on the Fusion. Uh, and what, I think when they read, when they redo the, uh, focus or uh, sorry, the escape, uh, in the next year or so, then, you know, I'm sure we'll see the same capability added in there as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's totally worth it. I, 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 and in something like a BMW and so the, 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 the escape's going to lend itself to the MKC. So it'll be worth it there too. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's, I'm a control freak. And so this is where me and BMW go in two different directions. Everything in this car has its own mind. The wipers, the HVAC, the, the mirrors, the, uh, you know, the driver aids, uh, just like everything 
does its own thing and it's so distracting and annoying. <laughs> like, I don't want you to blow cold air at me. I set it to like warm. Stop trying to be like a house thermostat. Uh, and, and like you adjust the seat and there's little animations that play on the LCD. Like that's really necessary. Like it just, I, I realized this is me. <laughs> not the car but and it, it's taken me two days to sort most of it out and shut as much of it off as i can uh but yeah uh but you see the thing is if you actually own the car once you get the stuff set up and you you know then you save it into the memory position and you can tie that to individual key yeah cards. that's so, that's fine yeah you you and your your spouse can have different settings you know and whichever you know whichever key fob you walk up to you know it can preset itself to that. Um, you know, so once you get it, once you figure out where you want it, then it's great. yeah, that's that's true. And it like it does some cool stuff. Like you can uh, precondition the uh, interior, uh, which I thought was cool. Like that's something that a lot of like plugins and, and EVs can do. Um, but th this car can do it as well. So I thought that was slick. Um, and yeah, it it's just it, it's a it's a good teched up car i suppose <laughs> in that sense if that's your thing it's it's uh it's like i said uh, i'm curious did, did you try the did does yours have the uh, gesture control i it did some things that i did not expect it to be doing <laughs> so i turned off the gestures it does have it i should play with it um you know because all of that stuff is actually pretty well integrated you know bmw has really done its homework with putting the right kind of tech uh, that the driver's going to want. You know, the iDrive system's really easy to use and, and refine. Now, there is a lot of adjustment. I do, you know, I, even with the, like I talk about the HVAC, you know, being kind of a mind of its own, but also like the, there's two fans. The passenger can have their own fan and the driver has their own fan and you can adjust the airflow split and you can adjust and you can have warmer feet and cooler hands if you want. Like the, those are like, that's, that's worth the, uh, $75,000 the car costs, <laughs> you know, like the, the, you better get that stuff. And so it, it's a, a particular kind of car for a particular kind of owner. And once you get it all dialed in, like you say, I think, I think that's, that's a key. Uh, once you own it, uh, that, that's, that makes it really feel like yours. One thing I cannot get used to is it doesn't shut off. If you, if you open the door, which I've found out, apparently this is what I do. I'll get to where I'm going. I'll put it in park. I'll open the door and then I'll shut it off. It stays on like the, all the interior, the, the audio system and everything just keeps playing and you, you'll press the button to shut it off and it won't shut off. <laughs> so you have to shut it off with the door closed and then it'll shut everything down. And then if you walk around to the passenger door and open it, it'll turn the thing back on again. And unless you lock it and then it shuts everything off. I, I, I don't remember experiencing that when yeah. you drove it. Uh, it. It keeps it on for like a little while. It retains accessory power and then it'll shut it off on its own. But that's like, I'm not going to walk away from the car with the audio system playing. Like, no, <laughs> I'm just sorry. That's uh, again, that's me. So I've, I've ranted yeah. enough. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on to the final right. car, uh, which was the NSX and it didn't necessarily spend any time in your garage, but you got to have a good time with it. Yeah, I, I got to spend, uh, you know, about an hour and a half, two hours uh, with the uh, Acura NSX. Uh, unfortunately, you know, they haven't had any in the uh, the regular Michigan press fleet up to up to this point. Um, you know, most of them have been out in California. They've they brought uh, they brought a couple around for brief periods 
for um, the buff books uh, to use uh, and, you know, to like for car and driver to use for their 10 best testing and that sort of thing. But for the most part, they've kept them out on the West Coast. But um, they did bring a couple into town uh, earlier this week um, and brought them to Milan Dragway, where we got a chance to um, experience the launch control system uh, that they had on there. So before uh, before hitting the drag strip, you know, I got to take one out for about a 20 minute drive uh, around some roads in the uh, in the neighborhood. And um, man, that is such a good car. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you ever had a chance to drive a first generation NSX. I didn't, but this is this is what we were talking about the other day. Was um, you know, looking at it from a completely unexperienced sort of just like bench racing perspective, I was having trouble putting together how this NSX is a continuation of that first gen because the first gen really put the whole like auto world, especially these high end sports cars, on notice. Like it's 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 a perfect car. It's not like the Ferraris of that time where they're kind of like they're built with, you know, hammers and tongs and you can see the imperfections like the NSX is it's, it's an accord high end sports car. Uh, and, and, um, you were saying, you know, it was because of that, like, yes, it pushed all of those exotic manufacturers to get as good, but it was also kind of a, a sanitized experience, which was my concern with the newer car. Like, yeah, it's, but it's a hybrid and it, like, I understand that it can perform, but does it have passion? I would <laughs> say um, in, in some respects, yes, it does. Um, you know, it, it has, I, I'd say it has, you know, the same degree of passion that you find um, in most of its competitors right now, you know, in a similar price point, you know, so, you know, compare it to an Audi R8, um, you know, it's, you know, it's comparable, um, to that, you know, it's, it's got, you know, certainly got more visceral appeal, I think, you know, in terms of the, in terms of the powertrain now than the original did, or at least as, as, as near as I can recall, you know, 25 odd years pa having passed since I last drove one. Um, you know, with that, that twin turbocharged V6 that they have in there now, 500 horsepower, you know, the original had about 300 horsepower from a normally aspirated V6. Um, you know, so it's got lots of power. The thing sounds really good. Um, one of the, one of the really nice things that they've done is, you know, when you in sport or track mode, when you accelerate hard, you know, there's a duct that comes in from, from behind that, you know, and a flap opens up and it. You know, it pipes in some of the, the sound into the cabin. So you really hear it when you accelerate hard. Uh, and it's not, it's, it's a totally passive system, you know, totally acoustic. It's not, uh, use, you know, it's not uh, synthesizing anything or doing any active noise control. It's just basically just opening a flap that lets you hear what's going on behind you. So in that respect, it's got more passion. Um, but, you know, to, you know, to the same degree that I think most modern quote unquote supercars do, you know, it, it has been somewhat sanitized, you know, when the original NSX came out, you know, what, you know, what we, at that, at that time were typically called exotics rather than supercars. The term supercar hadn't really appeared probably until around 2000, I think, um, you know, those cars were very temperamental and, um, you know, usually pretty unreliable and required a lot of extra servicing. And, you know, the NSX transformed expectations of, you know, what's expected, you know, what customers expected in that segment. And, you know, so when you look at, you know, exotics or supercars, you know, there was before NSX and after NSX and everything that came after the NSX, you know, 
manufacturers, whether it was Ferrari or Lamborghini and uh, Porsche and Audi, you know, they really had to step up their game and create cars that were uh, much more usable, reliable, better fit and finish, uh, you know, nicer interiors. And so, you know, you look at those cars today and, you know, they, they, you can see what they gained from the original NSX. This new one, it's, it's certainly not as groundbreaking as that car was. You know, I think it's, it's very well executed. You know, it's certainly not the first hybrid supercar, um, but it, it's the first one in this price range, you know, between 150 and 200,000. Right. So that's like, that's like uh, 918 spider kind of thing in a much more, uh, affordable package right you know i mean 918 spider mclaren p1 la ferrari you know those are you know all cars that you know are getting up to you know close to a million dollars a piece and beyond so you know i mean two hundred thousand dollar cars you know not what anybody can term affordable but um you know it's it's starting to bring it down you know into that that uh more realistic segment let's say um so you know it it's you know the car is really fast um you know it rides and handles really well um you know everything works you know it's it it feels you know in a lot of respects like a like a a high end honda um which is what it is you know and there's nothing wrong with that um you know i mean certainly you know the infotainment system you know if, if you've driven any recent uh, hondas you know you'll feel right at well, home that's that. that's kind of too yeah. bad <laughs> <laughs> you know it's uh you know it's got the same um touch uh controls you know that are in that are in our civic that we got um uh, and you know it's it's running on android uh just like our our civic um you know which is it's fine you know there's, not, there's nothing wrong with it um and, but you know where things got really interesting is you know once i came back from the drive loop and uh, we get to try it out on the drag strip you know because this is a hybrid, you know, most modern high performance cars now have launch control systems built in. And, you know, where launch control, you know, typically, you know, what's been done with launch control systems up until now is, you know, with, with traction control, you know, traction control is designed to keep the wheels from spinning up, you know, so you keep the car stable, um, you know, and avoid, avoid too much wheel spin. The problem is when you're launching the car on, a, on asphalt or on a high traction surface, if you use conventional traction control in that scenario, what it'll do is it'll bring the engine power down and you, uh, you end up with not having enough power to get the car launched and it just bogs down. And so what launch control systems do is they're designed to uh, let the engine rev up to somewhere around the peak uh, torque uh, of the engine. So typically somewhere in the three to 4,000 RPM range and you know once you activate the launch control you step on the brake you step on the gas and um it and then you release the brake and the, you know when you before you release the brake the engine revs up uh and then as soon as you release the brake the wheels spin um until the vehicle catches up to the wheels and you know, that's how you get your maximum acceleration well because this is a hybrid now you've got electric motors that are generating their maximum torque at 0 rpm instead of at Three or four thousand rpm and so you've got to do things a little differently so you know in order to reduce the strain on the on the, the drivetrain and take advantage of the electric motors what they actually do is they launch they, they get the car moving with full torque from the electric motors 
And then once it's rolling at about three or four miles an hour, then it starts to, then it uh, engages the clutch and starts to feed in the power from the engine. And it just takes off like mad. Um, and one of the, uh, the things, if you've used, used traction or use launch control on a lot of cars that are out there on the market today, there's usually this really convoluted sequence of things that you have to go through to activate it because manufacturers usually don't actually want you to use it very much because it does put so much strain on the drivetrain. Um, you know, it, it, like, uh, you know, on an Audi, you know, on the R8, you have to go through a whole, a whole rigmarole to, to activate it on the uh, NSX. Basically you just twist the knob on the center console to put it in track mode, put your left foot on the brake pedal, right foot on the gas, release the brake and off. You See, go. I like it when automakers are that confident where they're just like, yeah, you go ahead. You're not going to break it. <laughs> like, like yeah. you know, Subaru is kind of the same way with, uh, when they, they bring the WRX or the STI around with, with launch control, they're, they're, they'll let you just pound on it mercilessly. They're like, Oh yeah, we've tried. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I managed to run an 11, three, uh, quarter mile at 122 miles. What's that feel like? Um, using that. Um, Actually, now having driven the uh, you know the Tesla Model S a couple of years ago um, with insane mode, um, it actually doesn't feel quite as fast, but it still feels really really fast. Yeah, that's that. I mean, you know, I've 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 actually you know I've driven uh, you know faster cars you know at Milan you know a few years back I had an opportunity Ford used to do uh, this thing you know they uh, they would invite some media to uh, participate um, and. Uh, the uh, the annual uh, NMRA meet uh, that takes place at the end of June at Milan, uh, and uh, they'd bring a bunch of Mustangs out and you know put us in those, and, and we would do some bracket racing. So I had a chance to do that a couple of times, and one time I actually got to take a pass in uh, a Cobra Jet, <laughs> uh, you know, which is their their factory drag race car, and you know that was a you know that was about a ten second pass in that thing. Uh, so you know that was that was actually a quicker car than this one was but you know that's also not a street legal right. car this is a completely street legal car totally stock you know unmodified uh so you know aside from the uh the model s the tesla model s you know this is the quickest street legal car i've i've ever driven that i'm, that I'm aware what was of. your trap speed hundred jesus yeah <laughs> that's you know and <laughs> You know, I mean, it was totally stable. Yeah, I bet. You know, no, yeah. no commotion. Yeah, and but the thing is, you know, because it's, you know, because it's a hybrid, um, you know, and it's using the electric motors to actually get it launched. Um, you know, no more smoky burnouts. Uh, so you know, you do, you do kind of lose, you know, some of the classic elements of, you know, driving fast in that kind of environment. But hey, I guess, yeah. I mean, I'm. That's right. It's, it's I'm older and more mature now. I don't really indulge in the smoky burnout anyway. All that means is that I'm just I'm going to have to buy tires. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't want to do that. You know, and, you know, tires for cars like this are not cheap. So, you know, if you can get that kind of speed without having to shred your tires, eh, why not? Yeah. So I, once you trade in the, uh, the Miata, once you're done with that, you can get yourself an NSX or you can get you can keep one and just get the other. Yeah. I mean, it'd be fine. Just like. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that thing's that thing's worth about as much as yeah house, for now. So I don't think so. I it, eleven, eleven under you know just that's a what was it eleven nine eleven eleven oh eleven three low elevens so yeah so if you know if you got if you practice at it you might even be able to get that into the tens 
three, uh, three, um, probably three. not. I mean, you're not, you're not going to do much better than a launch control lot, you know, setup. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's like three, three tenths can be a lot when you get down there, but yeah. So uh, compare that with, we, we talked about your Fox body Mustang, uh, last week and, or last, last show, uh, that had 224 horsepower. That might not even have cracked a hundred miles an hour in the quarter. Uh, probably not. <laughs> Uh, you know, of course, you know, it was also 800 pounds lighter than right. this car. The, the NS, the NSX, you know, the new, the current NSX, you know, in part because it's a hybrid, um, you know, is not really a lightweight. It's, you know, it's about 3,800. That's pounds. still light for, for a 500 horsepower hybrid. Like, yeah, well, actually, you know, when it's 500 horsepower, just from the engine, uh, the total output is like. 573, 575. Yeah. I mean, given what it is, it's not super heavy, but. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, you know, you're, you're not going to complain about the performance of this thing. I, I'm impressed. Uh, yeah. Well, and, you know, the, the, the time we get to spend with the NSX, uh, the drag strip, uh, actually came, you know, a couple days after the, uh, um, the uh, sports car race, the IMSA sports car race. It's part of the Detroit Grand Prix weekend, uh, which happened last Saturday. And uh, during the uh, the sports car race, um, you know, the NSX this year is competing uh, in the GTD class uh, in IMSA for the first time. And, you know, so it debuted uh, back in January at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Uh, sorry, 24 Hours of Daytona. Wrong, 24 Hours. 24 Hours of Daytona. And it's been showing pretty good speed up until now, but it hasn't managed to uh, get a win. Uh, and in Detroit, they got their first win with the uh, NSX. And uh, I got a chance to chat with uh, Art St. Cyr, who is the president of Honda Performance Development. Uh, and uh, HPD does all of Honda's North American uh, car racing programs. So, you know, they, they build the engines for the Indy cars uh, and they, you know, they run the NSX program and, and various other efforts, uh, you know, some grassroots uh, racing efforts uh, here in North America. And uh, so it's a short interview. Uh, we talked a little bit about the NSX and uh, what Honda's uh, or HPD's other future plans might be, whether they might get back into prototype racing uh, and IndyCar. And uh, why don't we drop that interview in here? I think that makes perfect sense. Okay. Okay, creep forwards again. Foot on the brake, full power. car was really made with 
GT3 spec in mind, but uh, even so, we're kind of the new kids on the block, and we've been kind of getting faster and faster, and uh, actually qualifying here, Catherine Legg put it, uh, we're starting second in the race today, so, you know, as you can see, we're, we're definitely seeing some progress. Yeah, it's a, it's a good, uh, it's, it's, it seems to be going along quite well, and, you know, un under the IMSA rules for uh, G the GTD class, it's considered to be a customer class, uh, but uh, HPD, Acura, and uh, Lexus have an exemption this year because it's your first year in the, in the class uh, to provide factory support. Um, after this year, are, uh, are, is it going to become a regular customer program so that any team that wants to buy an NSX and get involved uh, could, could uh, do that, or uh, what, what's your future plan? Well, we're still working on the details of that. Right now, really what we're focused on is making sure that the car is raceable. Right? We, have a, we have a factory program with a professional team that, that's working on, on making sure we get all the bugs out of the car. So, so if and when we decide to do that, it's going to be ready to go. Okay. Um, any plans to uh, maybe, uh, eventually maybe expand into a, uh, a GTLM or GTE program with that car? Well, you know, we, we always look at potential op opportunities around you know, North America of where we race. But uh, right now, really, our focus is on the GTD and, and making sure that, and, and also in the, the GT series in, in Pirelli World Challenge, to, to make the car a consistent winner. You know, once we get that done, then we'll really be able to start looking at other things that we want to do. And the, I think you know, probably the, the, big, the most important difference between the race car, I mean, aside from all the, the, the you know, safety equipment and everything, uh, but from the race car to the production car, is you eliminated the, uh, the hybrid system because of the, the rules, you know, the current GT rules don't allow that. Um, any thoughts about, um, I mean, has there, has there been any discussion uh, about in any of the GT classes with um, the sanctioning bodies about bringing uh, hybrid powertrains into GT racing? <laughs> Since there's so many, no, there's so yeah, many yeah. Um, you know, uh, hybridized GT cars, you know, sports performance cars on the road now and more coming all the time. Is, is that an area that's being discussed? Well, actually, we were just, we've been discussing this with the sanctioning bodies for several years now that our original intention was to race the NSX as a hybrid vehicle. That, that's really what we wanted. But there was some, let's say, hesitancy, you know, with the sanctioning bodies because there's some increased cost and increased complexity. But we are very, very confident with the hybrid system that we developed for the NSX road car that, like I said, that was our intention to, to race it as a hybrid. But right now, as you said, the, the GT or the GT3 rules is a rear-wheel drive, two-wheel drive configuration, non-hybrid. So we made the... Uh, the adjustments to do that, but it's a—I mean, we, it's a mass production engine. I mean, we get it from the the factory that makes the engine that we did that, so it could be converted anytime that that uh, we're able to do that. Okay. So but, but but we would actually welcome a series that that would let us race it as a hybrid. Okay. Um, and what about uh, the prototype class? Uh, you know, we've got uh, this year the the new DPI class has come in here in IMSA and the the global uh, LMP2 cars. Uh, is, uh, is HPD, you know, HPD was previously involved in the, the old LMP2 class. Um, are you going to get into the new DPI class in the coming years? Well, like I said, we look at all racing series. You know, we're, the, the DPI formula is very attractive, but, uh, you know, our philosophy is because it was so new that we really wanted to kind of let it play out and see how things are going. I mean, obviously it's gaining a lot of attention, so of course we'll look at it, but, but right now we haven't made any decision on what we're going to do if and when we're going to, to join that type of class. But like I said, right now, our, our main focus for Acura Motorsports is really focusing on the, the NSX GT3 and making that into a consistent winner. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Art. It's my Appreciate pleasure. It.
All right. Well, so from NSX and Honda Racing to the thrilling twists and turns of the Supreme Court. Uh, why don't we talk about patent exhaustion? Because I'm sure we're all <laughs> exhausted from racing. I'm trying to tie it in. I'm trying. OK, <laughs> well, you know, the. The, the case that uh, I put in the rundown here, uh, you might not think it actually has anything to do with cars, but potentially it could. Um, this is a case that the Supreme Court ruled on last week. There was a seven to one ruling, uh, and it's a uh, case known as uh, Impression Products, Inc. versus Lexmark. Uh, and uh, you know, Lexmark is a company that spun off many years ago from IBM that uh, was their printer business. That Lexmark makes laser printers and inkjet printers. And you might be wondering what that has to do with cars. Um, and technically, it has nothing to do with cars, except that this was a, a patent case. Um, Lexmark, like a lot of other printer manufacturers, has been, you know, going through various shenanigans to, um, you know, sell you uh, cheap printers at your local office supply store, and then sell you ridiculously expensive ink and toner cartridges. To refill those printers when you uh, exhaust the uh, the ink that's uh, that comes with it from the factory. Yeah, the uh, ink that lasts for like three pages. Yeah, uh, and so you know, uh, you know, I'm sure you know you've seen you know there's plenty of companies, you know, third party companies that you know um, do you know replacement uh, ink and toner cartridges, and they um, you know in many cases you know what they do is they what you know the office supply stores will you know you can turn in your old empty cartridges to them and uh you know in exchange when you buy a new one and uh what they do is they sell those to these third-party companies like impression products and they refurbish them and you know put them back you know refill them and put them back and resell them um and uh lexmark decided to sue these guys saying you know you can't you can't make um you know you can't refurbish our cartridges or you know re refill these cartridges um, and they sued a bunch of companies, and most of the others all settled a long time ago. But Impression decided to fight this. Um, if they, yeah, and they fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, right. and the Supreme Court ruled for Impression, you know, saying that uh, basically, you know, once Lexmark sells the uh, the cartridges to the original, uh, you know, consumers that bought them, um, they no longer have any patent rights over that. They can't collect any royalties on those anymore. Uh, and so, you know, those consumers are free to do whatever they want with them, including, you know, giving them to companies like Impression to refill them. Well, and that's where it applies to cars, because exactly. over the last few years, there's been the idea of right to repair. And I've seen this just sort of myself trying to maintain a sophisticated car. It's got a lot of proprietary software in it, and there are tools that are designed specifically to work with it and software to actually, you know, maintain it. And the manufacturer doesn't really like the idea of the average consumer having this stuff for a variety of reasons. Some of them valid. Some of them are, you know, sort of if you want to spin it like they're trying to create a monopoly. Uh, sure. But you know, part of it is the fact that it's a very sophisticated machine that could kill somebody if you don't repair it correctly. And yeah. so there's there's two sides to the issue. But that's that's sort of this that whole repair uh, uh, side of it and right to repair is is where these two cases or the you know, this dovetails with automotive. Right. And, you know, I mean, we've seen 
you know, uh, some cases over the last few years where car makers, you know, have tried to, you know, certainly when, when some states have tried to pass right to repair laws. Uh, I mean, you, I think you had uh, something in Massachusetts. Yeah. And, you know, there have been other states where this has happened. The automakers have fought against those. And, uh, you know, they, they have tried to uh, when the uh, Copyright Office, uh, you know, has considered exemptions to uh, the uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Uh, that would, for example, you know, allow for, uh, you know, uh, other manufacturers of other diagnostic tools to tap into uh, the systems, the software and the vehicles. Uh, you know, they have fought against that. So what, uh, you know, where where this case, you know, could potentially play into that is as we move into autonomous vehicles, uh, manufacturers of those vehicles are you know, they're probably, they're almost certainly going to end up being liable for the performance of those vehicles. So if anything goes wrong with those vehicles, they are going to be on the hook for, you know, any damages. And so that means that um, they're, they're going to be relu increasingly reluctant anyway to sell those vehicles to consumers. And I think that this case will probably push them even further away from wanting to sell these vehicles to consumers. So you'll probably won't um, from most manufacturers, you probably won't ever be able to buy an autonomous vehicle. They'll only be available through uh, mobility services, you know, ride hailing type services and other services where either the manufacturers retain ownership of the vehicles and basically you pay per mile or per ride or, you know, pay subscription fees or whatever to have access to vehicles or, you know, they will have other fleets operate them for them. Uh, but, you know, it will be under the condition that the manufacturers, you know, retain the ability to do all the service and maintenance on these vehicles, because, you know, once a manufacturer sells a vehicle to a consumer, you know, it's going to be just like this. You know, they can no longer prevent that consumer from modifying or, you know, servicing it with, um, you know, third party parts that might not be up to the original specs, uh, things like that. So, you know, I think that this will drive manufacturers in that direction. Yeah, I mean, the best they can do at this point, I suppose, is to, to if there's any kind of uh, warranty, they can certainly deny uh, a warranty claim if the you know proper parts or proper procedures weren't followed. But again, like once it's in your hands, like if I buy a blender, you know, it I can do whatever I want with that. I can put the cat in it. Right. <laughs> you know, no, or, nothing you know, stops I mean, me. You can go in, you know, I mean, you know, with a car, you can... You can go in and, and modify the software, recalibrate the thing, and manufacturers aren't going to want people doing that, you know, because even even if it does, you know, even if they say, okay, if you do anything like that, it's going to void the warranty. Um, you know, if something bad happens, you know, the blowback on the manufacturer, the PR, you know, blowback is going to be so bad that, you know, even though they may not be technically liable for the problem, it's it's still going to reflect poorly on the company. Well, yeah, I mean, think of how popular the uh, idiot idea of rolling coal is. And so, you know, to do that, you are directly modifying the sort of federally mandated and and, and kind of administrated um, uh, emissions controls. Uh -huh. And so if you do that on your car, if you if you even now, if you grab a tuner and you adjust the just sort of the mapping of your ECU, so you you feel like you run a little richer and you make a little more power, whether or not you actually do it's very easy to say uh, overload the catalytic converter and burn that out. Well, that's warranted for 10 years. So if you do that, then the manufacturer 
you know, gets the car in for right. Right. Unless they can say, oh, no, 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 you tinkered with this. And so we're not going to cover. I don't see. I don't know if they can actually deny that because they're federally mandated to cover that equipment. But if the user causes the issue, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, that's another area. But it, it does put it in a very interesting place where it's it's a consumer good and the consumer has the right to, to you know, either maintain or break it as they see fit, you know, with the parts that they see fit. And there is a little wiggle room about what the manufacturer is going to cover in terms of, of warranty, but it it opens that liability question up, I guess. And, and from my work with lawyers, <laughs> there's, there's nothing large corporations hate more than liability. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So, um, Continuing on, you know, from from that topic, um, one of uh, a tweet that just came in a short time ago, um, uh, John was asking a question. Uh, Realistically, when should I be able to buy a thirty thousand dollar so car with hands off capability on highways as opposed to full autonomy? Um, very possibly never. Yeah. So this, I guess, we should uh, think about when you're talking about autonomous cars too. You're talking about like level five, right? Like well, that's level the... four or five. You know, so. You know, the the only distinction between you know what's defined as a level four autonomous or level five uh, is they're both fully autonomous. But a level four is auto- you know can operate fully autonomously within certain prescribed conditions. You know, so for example, you know it might not be able to do it in the snow. Um, you know, or you know it might not be able to do it in dusty conditions. So there there may be limits on when it can do it, but it it can operate fully autonomously without the driver, without a human ever taking over control. Um, and then as you expand the range, the operating domain, of, you know, where it can actually do autonomous operation, when you eventually get to the point where it can do it everywhere, that's, that becomes level five at that point. Okay. So, the, you know, the level four and five are, you know, what we call highly automated driving. Right. Sounds like boring. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, basically you don't do any driving. There's no human driving. It's, you know, the vehicle drives itself. Uh, You never take over control. You know, what, uh, what John here is asking about is something uh, more along the lines of, you know, a level two to level three, Um, you know, you know, true hands-off capability. You know, one of the first cars with that will be the, the Cadillac CT6, uh, later this summer with the super cruise system, which will be a truly hands-off system. Uh, you know, and it's got, you know, driver monitoring, you know, to make sure the driver's available, you know, to take over control if needed, but it's designed for hands-off capability, but that's going to be a 70, $75,000 car. Um, it's entirely possible that you may never be able to get a $30,000 car, at least not a new $30,000 car with that kind of capability in it. Um, what about the idea? It'll probably be at least another four or five years. What about the idea of, I see comma AI is making some noise about, um, sort of offering a DIY kit. Uh, like, could you ever. Well, that was, I mean, that was last year and they, they canceled that program. There's still, there was chattering today. Oh, was there? Okay. I haven't. Well, I I don't know if it was about that, but I know that they're still like around. They, they made the software open source. They published it on, on Git. uh, I think. You know, and they put the plans out there. So if somebody else wants to make their own version of it, they can do that. Um, you know, but I would I would strongly recommend against doing that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, even even still, that's I mean, that that's not really going to be, you know, fully hands off capable. It's, uh, I, you know, 
it's a that's a bad idea just don't don't even bother <laughs> don't do that yeah <laughs> you know what have a kid now and by the you know in 16 years he'll be able to drive you around and uh, he or she i'm sorry uh and you will have your fully autonomous you will absolutely have a fully autonomous vehicle in 16 years or you know if you want to ride around <laughs> in a thirty thousand dollar car with your hands off the steering wheel you know install the taxi app on your phone <laughs> yeah. you know and uh you know <laughs> get lift or you know some other uh service to you're just that's very disciplined i like it uh, <laughs> i see what you're up to um but the so the autonomous thing too and, and liability that actually brings us to another topic that i you put in the rundown that's really interesting is is the the trolley problem which i think also underscores the fact that we may never see uh private ownership of autonomous cars right you know and you know the, as i've said before you know um for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, um, you, you probably won't be able to buy a fully autonomous car. And, you know, one of one of the issues you know, around autonomous vehicles is, you know, what they call the trolley problem or basically programming ethics into the vehicle. You know, you get these potential edge cases where, you know, some sort of crash cannot be avoided. Um, and, you know, how how does how is the vehicle programmed to make a decision? You know, if there's a potential where, uh, you know, you've got you know, five people over here or one person over here, you know, which one do you decide, you know, to, to do, you know, do you decide to kill one person or kill five people? And, you know, it's a hypothetical situation, but you know, it, it could, it could potentially happen, but it's probably going to be pretty rare. Um, but you know, you know, there, there's, there's people thinking about how to deal with that and, it, it's a it's a complex problem, but the, the the reality is it's so unlikely to ever happen. And um, you know what's probably going to end up happening. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a story in, in Wired that it's it's likely to end up coming down to um, some legal decisions. You know, things will happen. There will be court cases, and it'll end up being down to you know lawyers and judges to decide. You know, what is the correct response in those kinds of situations and then you know another another way that this could all play out as well is you know i've been a big proponent of you know autonomous vehicles should be also equipped with v2v vehicle to vehicle excuse me vehicle to vehicle communications uh and if you do that you know there was a conference i was at a, uh, speaking at a couple of weeks ago in california uh and there's a, a researcher from um, toyota uh, his name is Guar Bonsal, and I've seen him speak a number of times. And one of the things that Toyota has done in uh, Japan, where they've already launched uh, V2V on a couple of models in Japan, is they have uh, what they call cooperative adaptive cruise control. I mean, you were talking about ACC before, where you know it's using the radar, you know, to measure the distance to the vehicle ahead of you and and maintain a, a safe distance. Well, if you add vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications to that, and you've got two ve two vehicles with with V2V capability talking to each other, they can cooperate, you know, and you can make the, the control even smoother and you can have the vehicles running closer together if the following vehicle knows, you know, that the, the leading vehicle is going to slow down before the sensors can actually detect it. You can have, you know, this cooperative control and you can, as you get into more and more automation, you can start to extend that capability because, you know, with V2V, you can see, beyond the line of sight that the sensors have. You know, when you've got the sensors on a vehicle, they can only see what's 
around them. So if there's a, if there's vehicles around you, you can't see what's two or three vehicles down the road or, you know, a couple hundred yards down the road, but other vehicles can, and they can transmit that information back and forth. So you can do smarter control. And, you know, there's the, the potential that, you know, the, the, the more you can extend the situational awareness of an automated vehicle, you could potentially avoid get even getting into these these edge case scenarios like the trolley problem. Yeah, I, I think that those things are going to like those are problems we're going to have to solve. And I, I almost on an individual sort of situational basis, uh, yeah. you know, you can't really make a blanket rule because the, like you get into one about you know, like just so many different um so many different scenarios really like you have to fall back on the sort of interpretation of the statutes that are there to sort of make that one work. And and that's what we're going to have to do. Um, so yeah, let's move on to more doom and gloom okay. about uh, uh, fancy future cars. Uh, premiums going up for Tesla's for insurance. You're going to pay more to insure your hyper expensive car because they're really expensive when they break. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's you know one of the interesting conversations I've been involved in with some people, um, you know, over the last year, um, you know, is, you know, when you get into uh, automated vehicles, what happens to insurance companies, you know, if cars, you know, all of a sudden are no longer crashing at the same frequency, and you know, one of the potential things that could happen is, you know, these these car these automated cars um, also tend to be a lot more expensive. And so, you know, even though crashes may be less frequent, when they do happen, uh, the, you know, the damage is significantly more expensive. Well, yeah, I mean, you, if you're going to break those sensors that have to be kind of exposed in a lot of cases, like, yeah. The, yeah. And, you know, with Teslas, even even when they, you know, when they're not autonomous, uh, you know, like like other, um, you know, premium cars, they are more expensive to uh, to repair. Which is, you know, that and that's interesting, too, because I saw on Twitter um, one of the uh, sort of auto writers I follow. He's in, in Europe, but he, he kind of pointed out that a lot of the pieces that they use and, and not necessarily like collision repair parts, which you're talking about body pieces, then that's all like there's nowhere else to get that than Tesla. But, you know, stuff like the brake pads and a lot of the underlying pieces that build that car, they're not unique to Tesla. They're they're you know from suppliers and some of the parts cross reference to other automakers and you can get that stuff less expensively than going directly through Tesla. So it's just interesting that like they're that much more expensive even though they're kind of built from from common stuff where they can be. Yeah, well, I think you know in in this particular case, you know AAA has decided to raise the premiums by up to thirty percent on the Model S and the Model X because you know they're seeing you know data from the Highway Loss Data Institute. You know they're, they're Associated with uh, uh, Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, you know, they basically they they do actuarial data, you know, on you know all different cars, and you know they collect data on different types of different vehicles and you know different drivers, and you know they put together these actuarial tables that insurance companies use to figure out, you know, okay, what how much should I be charging for premiums, you know, to cover this car, you know, how much, you know, if there's an accident, how much is it going to cost me to fix it, and then they charge accordingly. and so, you know, the cost of repairing Teslas is very high, uh, especially for the Model X, you know, with those fancy doors, but even even for others. And, you know, I mean, this is this is not a problem that's necessarily unique to Tesla. You know, a couple of years back um, when Ford first launched the aluminum F-150, 
um, you know, I don't know if you remember, uh, Edmonds did a thing, you know, they bought an F-150 and then they had one of their, uh, uh, writers, you know, go in the garage with a sledgehammer and start whacking at the side of this thing because they wanted to figure out how much it was actually going to cost to repair it. Uh, and one of the interesting things that they found is that uh, the taillight cluster, because the uh, blind spot information sensor, the you know, blind spot information system uses radar sensors in the rear corners. What Ford had done is they actually integrated the radar sensor into the taillight cluster. And, you know, in the process of inflicting this damage on the truck, they cracked the taillight cluster and it needed to be repaired. It was an $850 part because of that radar Ooh. sensor in there. But yeah, I mean, it, that's that's sort of the double edged sword. As the cars get more sophisticated, uh, you know, the, the parts that break are more expensive. But that's, you know, if it's going to have that part that's expensive, but also avoid collisions sort of on a a more global level like you know you're going to reduce the overall amount of collisions so as an insurer your cost should actually drop i just don't think we're there yet so in the meantime they're going to crank up the rates yeah you know i mean you know clearly you know uh, from crash test results and things like that you know teslas um are very good at protecting their occupants you know so your chances of being injured if you get into a crash in a tesla um, you know, are, are a lot less than in many other cars. So, you know, that's good, you know, in terms of being somebody riding or in a, in a Tesla. But, um, you know, the damage that's inflicted on the car itself, um, because the, the cost of repairs is so high for a number of reasons. You know, I mean, it's, it's an aluminum structure. They've got, you know, limited, there's a limited number of places that can actually fix it. Um, you know, parts themselves are expensive. Uh, you know, what often happens is, you know, they, they end up writing off these cars because it costs more to repair them than the vehicle is worth at that point. Yeah. So if you're worried about that, um, maybe drive something a little bit more common. Yeah. <laughs> like an Accord or a Camry. Or an NSX. Uh, wait, no, that's not right. Um, second, we said Accord. It only feels common. Right. Ooh. No, I don't think that's true. <laughs> No, it's not, it's not true. <laughs> We're just making inaccurate statements now. Um, so, yeah. So, we, well, we've gotten through all our topics. Yeah. Uh, we did have a couple other questions on uh, Facebook. Uh, so, let's see. Uh, KC would love to hear a discussion on the new Subaru Ascent that's coming out next year. Uh, it's a big three-row SUV, and that's about all we know right now. Uh, I think it's going to be great. It probably will be. It'll probably have you know real good all wheel drive. And... I I doubt it'll have the flat six. Um, I think my my guess is is said what's going to be in. Yeah, I don't think they've said either. And and as much as I love that flat six because it sounds like a Porsche, uh, that's just a lot to keep going for one model. Um, you know the the two point five turbo can probably do it. And my assumption would be that they'll also have the uh hybrid idea going on there yep at some point so and then um, uh jared had a question uh, what the hell is wrong with tesla why on earth are they developing a new platform for the model y isn't the model 3 a bespoke platform already clearly they have learned the ways of vw with the mqb um yeah the, the t earlier this evening uh tesla had their um their annual meeting their annual shareholder meeting and uh, I was reading an article before this started. Uh, uh, Elon was, was asked about this uh, and he made some his, his response to the question 
I thought was actually kind of strange um, and and not really very accurate. Uh, you know, he he said, you know, he, he and he has said previously, he said a few months back that uh, the Model Y, which is going to be their new, more affordable uh, crossover, um, is not going to share its platform with the Model 3. It's going to have a, a separate platform. And, you know, at the shareholder meeting, you know, he said, you know, they what he said was they learned their lesson from, the, you know, developing the Model X off the Model S, um, you know, that they should have done a, a dedicated platform for uh, for the, you know, that was designed to be an SUV. And actually, the you know, you looking at it, the problem with the Model X is not its platform. That's the least of its problems. No, I thought the problem was the Falcon doors. Uh, well, yeah, there's <laughs> that and, and a whole bunch of other stuff and the design, you know, the seats, the seat design that they put inside, you know, for the second row seats. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there was a whole bunch of issues with that thing. Um, the platform was not one of those issues. You know, the reality is most high volume crossovers and SUVs are derived from car platforms. They're not unique. And, you know, even in the cases where manufacturers give them separate designations, they, they more often than not share a lot of componentry with. Car yeah. Platforms. Well, that's, that's what I was going to ask is, is it one of those like CEO obfuscation moves to people who don't know any better to say like, Oh yeah, it's going to be its own platform, you know, very much the way it's, like back in the day, the the Chrysler uh, K platform was pretty much exactly the same as the E platform and the G it's, and the H. Right. It's just that the E and the K were like the the E was the longer K. That's all. So like your Reliant was the same but thing as your New Yorker. The distance between the axles. You know they they all right. had the same track. You know so they didn't even make them wider or narrower. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they, like everything's exactly the same width. Right. Uh, so like, is is that what he's doing? Yeah. It, it, it just it doesn't make any sense. Like if if knows, I mean, it, may, designing a platform is so expensive. Yeah, I know. Um, I think Tesla's problem is Silicon Valley. Yeah, like it's just it's Tesla. Yes, <laughs> uh, I, I would I would agree there. Um, that just seems like hubris, but. I mean, whatever. Hubris? Are you joking? Yeah, I mean, I I like Elon Musk. I really do. I think he, like he just, I love that he just decides to do stuff. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Um, I've been watching with rapt attention about you know how SpaceX has has worked. Uh, but yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I in, in many respects, SpaceX has been far more successful than Tesla has. Yeah, well, I you know I think to a certain degree, rockets are easier than consumer automobiles. Yeah. You know. Um all right, was, was that all the was that all the questions? Uh let's see. I believe so. Yep. That's I I mean I think we kind of commiserated. We didn't really like we kind of non-answer answered, but um yeah. That's what we do. So anyway, thank you for I did see the the feedback on we could, we got some good reviews on iTunes, so thank you very much. We appreciate that. Um it uh, it warmed my heart that everybody's found us now because I, I went and read the Autoblog podcast uh, reviews, too. And, um, you know, people did some of the people leaving comments are not in love with their new format. And that's that's too bad because they're working really hard at it. I like the music and what they've done. So I just you know, it, it does make me feel good that people miss us. 
<laughs> so um, now they know where to find us. So so please tell your friends and uh, you know leave us reviews there. Please engage with us on uh, uh, social media. We are uh, Facebook um, Wheelbearings uh, Wheelbearing Media, I believe, is our, our page. Um, I'm Boston underscore Auto. We are uh, on Twitter. We are at Wheelbearings Cast No Vowels uh, on Twitter. You are Sam Abuel Samid on Twitter. Um, I think those are all the places to hit us. We have an email, right? Uh, we Kinda. have an email at uh, uh, wheelbearingscast uh, with vowels at gmail.com. Um, and uh, I think that's about it. And, you know, yeah. if you like the show, tell tell your friends that are into cars and transportation and, you know, tell them to subscribe too. you know, in whatever, whatever format they like to listen to, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, Pocket Casts or Apple Podcasts or Overcast or, or anything else. You know what I I actually I I think I I want to ask for a little bit more feedback is um what do you what what are we not doing that we should be doing like what what do you want want more of and less of kind of like help us fine tune the podcast in that sense like are we doing too much garage and not enough something else so l- let us know uh and we'll you know either completely ignore it or we'll make adjustments <laughs> All right <laughs> Thanks for listening. All right. See you next time. I'm going to give the dog a pill. All right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.